Enjoy the first uh, new show on the new network. Uh, do you notice any difference? No, no, not at all. The RSS worked and sounded good. A couple of people. It was funny. It, it, it was, you know, put a little extra effort into it. Uh, it seems like uh, it went pretty well in terms of, like, all the stuff that was supposed to forward getting forwarded. You know, the, R, uh, the RSS feed redirects and... It's just crazy, though, because it's like there's like four different redirects. There's like feeds.muleradio.net slash the talk show is really a C name. Um, is that FeedBurner? No, FeedPress. Uh, feed, oh, okay. FeedPress is like the new indie, totally indie version of FeedBurner. I should probably get on that. I'm still using FeedBurner. <laughs> I still don't know, though. It's like... Uh, I'm like I'm torn because they do seem to have some good analytics, but on the other hand, I I always like just controlling my feed. Totally. And they, you know, and the feed press seems like the best option for something like this by far. Um, and you know, you could there's like a you you know they have an API so you can always do a manual rebuild. Say hey look I you know I made an edit to my last entry rebuild the feed so that you have the current version of everything. You know I don't know I might. It seems like they do a decent job estimating subscribers, which is the big thing. Right. Yeah. And that's, and I think you're on uh, SoundCloud as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's I, why I signed up there because they're the only ones who even try to tell you how many times it's been played. Yes. I don't know how they are determining, you know, what counts as a play. This was like the old YouTube question of 2006. Like, right. how much of the video do they actually watch? Uh, and I actually owe the listeners a a correction on that. I, I was Molt last week. I uh, I said SoundCloud was free, and it, they do have a free tier. But uh, for like unlimited downloads, it's not free. It's thirty dollars a month, I think, which is I, what I have now for for this show. Um, but compared to what I would pay to host the audio on S three, uh, which I think would probably be around two or three grand a month. It is free, right? When you, when you're comparing two or three grand for hosting on S3 versus thirty dollars a month for SoundCloud, all right, that's free. In my, you know, with an asterisk. Yeah, it's crazy that S3 gets expensive. It doesn't really scale that well in terms of pricing for media. No, not yet. Like video, I mean, I can't even imagine what a popular video download would cost yeah because i would think video would have to be at least at least an order of magnitude bigger than audio right uh my all of which just makes youtube's infrastructure more impressive when you think about it yeah absolutely yeah because my show this show is usually around 70 megabytes you know 60 70 80 megabytes depending on how how far past the hour mark we blow yeah um the one hour? You mean the two hour? Yeah, mark? yeah, two hours. You know, you could, you're, you're still. You, I think it's usually under. Still under. I think it's like fifty megabytes for about an hour, and then uh, at the, you know, with the audio compression settings we use, and so you know, somewhere between fifty and a hundred for an hour plus show. My first big story at Forbes when I was there was trying, and this was uh, early two thousand six, trying to guess how much YouTube's bandwidth bill was based on their, and this is YouTube, you know, pre-Google acquisition. They're they're a venture-funded company, 
And back then, there were very few options for hosting video, so they were using uh, these content delivery networks. And I think one, I think the one they were using was Limelight. Um, and the, the big one is Akamai, which is actually they're both public companies now. Right. But um, and they refused to talk to me; they wouldn't tell me. Um, and so I just used kind of publicly available data of how, you know how many how many hours of video they streamed a day, the kind of uh, rate, you know, going rate for video streaming, uh, or video, they actually don't, don't, did not stream. It was a, it was a progressive download, which was cheaper than streaming because back then to stream, you had to have some Adobe license hmm. and, uh, and, and then, yeah. And then I, and I made a guess and I guessed that it was a million dollars a month. Um, you know, an educated guest based on interviews with all these experts and that kind of stuff. And we published this article and people went crazy. It was just a huge, it got a lot of attention because I think the dig headline was something, this was when dig was massive. It was like YouTube burning up cash, (laughs) spending a million dollars a month on, uh, of their VC money on bandwidth. And, um, I the first thing I heard it back, you know, kind of through like a second degree grapevine was that I was kind of off by 10x, which is kind of, you know, not ideal. You, you know, you, it's always it was very clear that it was an estimate and you never want to be off by by that much. So, uh, you know, a million dollars a month would have been a lot back then, especially you know, this was before the era of the 50 million dollar VC round. So, um, so for, which way were you off though? You were off high. Uh, I was high. Yeah, yeah. So they were which, they were running YouTube pre pre Google. They were running it for a hundred thousand dollars, roughly a month, maybe something like that. But that's, then that's I impressive. Also, yeah, yeah. Well, it was much smaller then. But then I think I saw an interview more recently with one of the founders where they said that it cost almost a million dollars a month in the early days. So (laughs) I don't know. I don't really know. (laughs) I mean, you know, someone has the bill somewhere, so we know. But then if you looked at Limelight's financials, there was no way that YouTube was, you know, that big of their, because they were not a huge uh, company at that point. There was no way that YouTube was generating like a third of their revenue or whatever it was. So anyway, it was a really, it was like the, one of the first, um, business tech stories I did where we kind of played the the wire, you know, the follow the money game. And it was a lot of fun. It was a really fun story. I got a lot of attention. I, I you know, I hope it was more accurate than it was. And I actually don't even know how accurate it was, but because people from YouTube just would never comment or, or give a suggestion either way. But it was fun. Yeah, it's a fun, like a modern equivalent of how many jelly beans are in the jar type of question. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And back then, you know, now video delivery is a lot cheaper, I think. Um, and, and video is bigger, too, because it's HD. But um, it, it's, you know, and I'm sure there are quite a lot of companies with billion-dollar AWS bills. Oh, it's got to be. Yeah. Well, Google, I wonder what, I wonder, you know, a good question now is what is Google paying for bandwidth for YouTube a month? I wonder because I think that a lot, and this is where... Now I'm making stuff up because I don't actually know, but I think a lot of their uh, bandwidth is on a peering basis, so they don't have to pay actual cash. They just kind of plug in to the other ISP, and they, I don't know. Great question. Probably, I'm not sure. It must be. And yeah, you might be right that that Google isn't such a unique situation that they're 
they don't pay for bandwidth like normal companies do. But yeah, and there were always all, all these murmurs that like Google was buying up all kinds of um, dark fiber, and I would not be surprised if they have the most advanced network infrastructure of any you know company that's not like a straight up telecom company. So I don't know. Now I'm just making stuff up. Which is, you know, (laughs) that's commentary, right? That's how. (laughs) Yeah, we're allowed to make stuff up. It's just a podcast. Um, I wonder, too, like for user submitted videos to to YouTube, they still have the 10 minute limit, right? I don't know. I've never I haven't uploaded a video to YouTube in a long time. I know that, you know, that for stuff that there's like where there's like a commercial partnership, I mean, when when, you know, some people can host their whole movie on YouTube. Right. But that's not just like guy signs up for YouTube account and uploads an hour video like the 10 minute thing is still a real limit. But I'm not th- quite sure when so what the exceptions are. You still see videos chopped into multiple parts when they're clearly not partner videos like, you know, ri- some rip of a of a apple keynote or something like that a lot of them are still chunked up uh i don't know though good question i haven't i haven't you know uploading making web videos is one of those things that every like two or three weeks i'm like oh man i wish i was making cool videos and then that's the end of that (laughs) but someday maybe i don't know uh yeah i don't know the podcast audio thing you know Again, we talked about I talked about it last week, but it's 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 weird. I don't know. But SoundCloud's cool and you're right that they do just to circle back five minutes, that they seem to do more work trying to figure out how many downloads you have than anybody else. And it isn't just okay, you started a download. Right. right. Well we think. Right. We don't But it's it's important because a podcast is delivered many different ways. You know, I'm, I'm sure some people are actually listening to it via the actual SoundCloud player, but a lot of people, probably most people, are just pulling the file right. uh, through either iTunes or the iOS podcast app or any other podcatching type thing. So, right. well, um, and the other thing where... too is it, it gets to be like RSS too, because you know, podcast is RSS, but the same way with RSS feeders that that the the numbers don't equate to people because let's say you signed up in I, Apple's podcast app and you have a subscription to the show and now you're using Castro or something else that's new. Uh, people don't unsubscribe from the other one. So you you might be copying it twice. You might be downloading it once in iTunes on your Mac where you don't even listen to it and then once in Castro on your iPhone. You're just one person. You're only going to listen once, but you might have two or even three copies of it. Yeah, and I often listen to, you know, this show on three or four different devices throughout the course of the show. Right. So who knows what? <laughs> well, it's it's better for everyone if all of those count as a play. So. Right. No, but yeah, I mean, it's I'm not complaining about it. I'm just no. only pointing out that it's a very hard thing to put a number on, and yeah, it always it, has it, been. I mean, even the Nielsen numbers for TV, they were. Nonsense, you know. Oh, I mean, have you ever been part of the Arbitron radio survey where you actually have like a paper book and you're supposed to fill in what you're listening to on the radio? No, I, but I think I've I heard, did that when I was like 12 because they sent me five bucks in the mail. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, fine. For five bucks, I'll write down the radio right. shows that I'm not listening to. Right. That is actually how radio ratings, I, I don't know if they're still 
computed that way, but they it, might be. I right. think I think it's a little more digital now, but it's still there's still uh I believe I was talking to someone about this somewhat recently. I don't remember if it was radio or TV though, but it's still based on I think it's I think we were talking about TV Nielsen. I think it's still based on like, you know, Nielsen households that have some sort of equipment or yeah. Now it's it's log. I, at some point in the eighties or nineties they switched to equipment, but it, I know when I was a kid in like the seventies I remember reading that it was like Nielsen. It was a logbook that the, yeah. the family would do it, and that it uh, not that there was it back in those days. Not that there was a lot of inappropriate stuff on, but that people would because you had to self-report it. People would write wouldn't write the trashy stuff that they watched. That they were embarrassed, and they'd say, "Oh, I watched the you know the McNeil yeah. report on PBS." Right. Yeah. When in fact I watched were, Rick Steves all night. That's right. all I was watching. When in fact they were watching you know Brady Bunch reruns or something. Yeah. Let's take a break. I'm going to thank the first sponsor. This is great. This is a new sponsor, Karma. K A R M A. Uh, what's Karma? Karma. Uh, at a high level, you kind of think of them, you know, like what Mophie juice pack, what that is, you know, the, not the ones that, uh, that uh, case, but you know, the little square rectangle ones and you just have battery power. You could use it for anything. You could use it for your iPhone. You could use it for your iPad, anything with a USB connection. Karma is like that, except instead of battery power, it's for Wi-Fi. So Karma is a little cute, very small. You take a look at the hardware. It's really, really small, easily fits in any kind of pocket, very thin. Uh, 4G hotspot, and you turn it on, gets a 4G connection. It creates a little, takes the 4G and creates a little local Wi-Fi network, and you can connect anything to it. You connect your iPhone to it, your Mac, you can connect your iPad. Um, super cool to have a device like that um, or a hotspot for your Mac because Macs still don't come with any kind of 4G, you know, wire, cellular networking. Uh, and it's they've got a crazy cool business model. No monthly fees. You just buy the data and you can take as long as you want to use it. So if you buy 100 megabytes or something like that, you only use 15 this month. Next month, it doesn't reset. You still have 85 left. You just use it until it's up. Not a monthly fee. Um, data is really affordable. It costs as little as $9.99 per gig, 10 bucks for a gigabyte. Pretty good for, for cellular. And it's made for sharing. So you create an account. And you create your little hotspot and you let other people on. If you have friends, you can let them on your hotspot. And every time somebody else joins using your hotspot, you each get an extra 100 megabytes free. You get another 100 megabytes added to your account. You can use it whenever you want. They get 100 megabytes to start with just for signing up for free. So if you just keep letting people use your thing, you might never even pay for data. Uh, they have an iOS app that lets you check. They have an Android one too if you happen to have an Android device. Uh, use the app. You can check your balance, see who's connected to your device right now. So what do you do? You buy the device. It's 99 bucks to buy the little hotspot device. Uh, when you sign up, you get 100 megabytes free. Uh, but don't just go there and buy it. Do it this way. Their URL is yourkarma.com. Y-O-U-R-K-A-R-M-A. Yourkarma.com. Slash the talk show. Go to that code, yourkarma.com, the talk show, and you'll save 15% off right off the top. So it'll only be 85 bucks for you. Uh, like I said, it's like a little Mophie juice pack, but instead of battery power, it just gives Wi-Fi to all your devices. Really cool deal. Great prices, and with the sharing thing, you might not even have to pay for it. So go check them out. Great sponsor. 
I've used one of these things and uh, works works a charm. Uh, used it uh, last month out in uh, San Francisco when I was out there for the build conference. If you can do it, if you're listening right now, you're going to WWDC. You should quick order one right now. See if you can get it before you before you get out there. Can't believe that's a week away. I cannot either. A week from we're recording on uh, Memorial Day. This is Monday, the 26th of May. So literally one week from today, it'll be uh, keynote will be over. Right? It'll be one one o'clock Pacific as we speak. So we will we'll be cracking open the uh, Health Book app and. Yeah, pricking our fingertips and measuring our bl- uh, doing a blood test on the. Uh... No, I don't know. <laughs> I use a an app called Ida, Ida, Ida. I don't know how to pronounce it. I T A, iOS app, and it lets you make little checklists. And you can sit. You know, probably dozens of apps that make checklists. But you, you, I have one for like packing for a conference, and then when I'm done. And then I just uncheck them all, and then the next conference I can do it again. Last year, like a dumbass, I did not bring an old iPhone to nah. WWDC. And so I had to sit there and think, well, I did. there's no way. You have to be a crazy person to install the first beta of iOS on your daily use iPhone. Especially when you're like away from home, away from, you know, you're on your phone all day. It's insane. And especially when it's iOS 7. Exactly. Well, exactly. When it's a major release like that. Right. And so I, I never, others, I don't know why, but it, so I've added a checklist to my, con- and I, you know, all year long, every time I go to anywhere else, any kind of business trip, I get the spare iPhone for iOS beta check thing. And I just check it off because I, I know I don't want it. But then when I pack for, for next week, I'll, I'll bring my nice. old, uh, iPhone 5, I guess. I, uh, I uh, ran out and bought a iPod Touch for that. And then... There were Retur- so many people last year it. who went to the one that I guess it's closed now, the Apple store on Market Street in San Francisco. Yeah, I think they're remaking it, right? Right, they're or, moving up to where Levi's used to be up uh, on okay. Union Square. I'm not sure if they're done with that yet though. I don't I don't uh, really I have attention. no idea. But anyway, the one that's right up there on Market Street, a couple blocks from Moscone. I don't know if they sold out or they came close to, but there was like a, a just you know, 40, 50, 60 people from WWDC going in to buy the the super cheapo one hundred ninety nine iPod Touch. That's awesome. Like yeah, the one that doesn't even have a, it doesn't even have a camera. Yep, that's the one I got. <laughs> right. Took it back like a week later when I realized that there was no need to have an an iPod Touch. But but you <laughs> took it back running the iOS beta. Yeah, well, I wiped it. I don't uh, know what it, I don't know what it wipes to. That's it wipes back to iOS to iOS beta. Oh well, <laughs> I'm sure they. Yeah, I wonder yeah, what they do with that. They can figure it out. Huh. I'm sure Apple can figure it out. Yeah. Um Yeah, I I I can't help but think we're going to see we're going to get betas of all that stuff next week. Yeah, so I I'm wondering the big question I have um and I'm thinking about writing about this tonight or tomorrow is how drastically different the new OS 10 is going to seem. Like just thinking about how um you know, when iOS 7 came out, people freaked out. You know, and obviously not the the Mac nerd types, but a lot of other people did. Uh, and I wonder if changing someone's Mac that drastically would also cause people to freak out. Hmm. And so I wonder how different it'll be. Theoretically, they would change a lot of the 
the, the uh, Mac OS stuff to more closely resemble iOS 7 or whatever iOS 8 is going to look and feel like, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I do not know what to expect, and I, my, my spidey sense is, is failing me. I mean, clearly it's going to change to some degree cosmetically, but just how radically, I don't know. Yeah. And also the idea of running this now f- almost uh, four-year-old MacBook Air with a new software running it also seems strange because OS X has really not changed that much visually since then. They've added a lot of stuff that I don't use, like the launcher and all that kind of stuff, but... I don't remember like a different feeling Mac OS. Right. Yeah, I think that when they, I forget which version number it was. It might have been 10.6. Maybe it was 10.5. But one of them, when they, when they got rid of the separate metal windows and just said all the windows just have one appearance and it's this gray. You know what I mean? There's not going to be two types of windows anymore. We're gonna yeah, I simplify. think that was Leopard, right? Yeah. It was probably ten five, and then ten six was Snow Leopard. Yeah, so ten yeah. five was the one where they made it look, and and it it certainly looked different than what came be- before it because they got rid of a lot of the candy colored stuff, um, but it was like a gentle flattening. It wasn't a radical flattening. Right. It was this is the sort of, and I think that's what a lot of people were expecting with iOS seven, was that kind of flattening. And a perfect example of that, if you can, anybody wants to look it up, just look up the screenshots from last year's WWDC app. Ah, uh, yes, I remember this. Uh, and everyone was like, oh, this is what iOS 7 is going to look like. Yeah, and I even saw on Twitter Mark Gurman from 9to5Mac the other day was writing, because he had written about it, you know, that, that, hey, this is what iOS 7 is going to look like. And he still thinks it did, that it was a clue as to what iOS 7 looked like. And I would say no. It was a step in that direction, but like a half step as opposed to the actual iOS 7 which was like holy shit. Yeah, was holy one, shit. That, that was my, you know, and a lot of people's reaction when that video came out just showing all the <laughs> all the new graphics and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I've said this before the last over the last couple of weeks on this show like the flat is overused in, in talking about these interfaces, but in, you know, it, it, there's no other word to say it that there, in a lot of the ways in iOS 7 on the iPhone and iPad, it is flatter. There's a lot less 3D treatments between elements, you know, that when something scrolls underneath a navigation bar, there's no shadow there. It's just a, just a one pixel line. I just don't see how the Mac can get away with that much flatness when you have, by definition, these overlapping windows. Yes. Yeah. By the way, I love uh, this is like, you know, as someone who learned web design in the mid 90s and didn't really learn much since then, no 3D or gradient modeling or any of that kind of stuff. I love flat design because it's all I've ever known. (laughs) So I'm I'm actually a competent designer again. But uh, and I'm reg- you know I'm already nervous about when it's going to start getting more more technical again and textured uh, yeah yeah we still have a, an iPad original iPad running uh, wow well, I guess it's iOS five now and you know I use it every few weeks and it's super weird yeah I think uh, it's in, weird in many ways great but in also many ways I'm very used to iOS seven now and and I really like it like there's 
there are some annoyances, but that's probably never not going to be the case. But I really like the way it feels. Yeah, I think that it's for all the the. I'm going to botch this. The what's the German term? Sturmendrang. All the yes, something like that. Uh, well, you guys know what I'm talking about. Well, for all of the consternation that iOS 7 caused, and and as as vocal as some of its critics are about the plainness of its visual style, in hindsight, when I go back and fire up one of those devices, I you know from my stack of old iPhones and look at iOS 6, uh, or look at an old uh, original iPad that has to be running I, iOS 5 or whatever the last version that that it supports is, it looks so much older. It just looks way more than I can't. It's hard to believe that it, that that until like eight months ago, that was what everybody was using. It really feels like it. It it's just the distant past, visual style wise. Yeah, and I don't see that changing. I mean, they might perhaps make some tweaks. Like there are some of the iOS seven icons that just don't really make sense. Um, like. I think Game Center and then maybe also the newsstand one, which is hiding all the apps in there. I don't know what's going to happen with newsstand. That might just vaporize. But Yeah, maybe with newsstand it's actually appropriate because I feel like they don't know what to do with newsstand. And so an icon that sort of doesn't really know what it is either kind of – Yeah, it, right. it, not to fitting. Not to be a jerk, but it kind of fits. Whereas Game yeah. Center, yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like they punted on it. It's attractive to me, but it doesn't – say game center no it says balls yeah it just says like it, i don't know it just looks like something you know we don't have an icon yet but we want to start giving beta builds yeah. out so you know it could be any app it could be any app at all it could be you know a photo app a notes app could be a game you know we'll just put this placeholder icon here yeah i'm excited about it though i do think you know in a Big part. I think it's really cool. Here we are one week out from WWDC. We have no idea what this Mac OS X thing is going to look like. And as a longtime Mac guy, you know, uh, as someone who really got drawn into the whole following Apple closely, specifically and only because of the Mac, I think it's pretty awesome that here we are in 2014 and the most exciting thing we have coming up next week is a, a Mac interface overhaul. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm pumped. I remember when... I switched from six to seven on the Mac, and that was crazy. Like, that was because that was the first one where the folders were colored in. Yeah. Six was system six was, you know, traced outlines. And then seven had the beginning of that kind of 3D folder look. And that was just. Yeah. Six supported color on certain models, but it was, you know, what's funny? It was a very flat color because remember, like, the, the, when they, yeah, it was very, very flat. I think it still had a black and white Apple logo, though. I think the color Apple logo didn't come in, uh, you know, for the menu bar until System hmm. Seven. But uh, but everything was flat. You know, the wind, even though you had color, the windows were still drawn just blue, not grayscale, black and white. It was just right. black pixels, pixels and white pixels for the windows and and uh, open and save dialogues and everything. And then Seven had like the the scroll bar had. A gradient to it, I yeah. believe. Yeah, and, and the, the window, folders, the window title bar had a gradient, yeah, sort of thing. And it was, you know, it, it was clearly an evolution of the System Six look. They just kind of colored in certain parts, but they didn't color in much. I think it was sort of. I wouldn't call that an exciting overhaul, though. 
Uh, to me, going from six to seven, it was a huge change, but it, the, the interface wasn't really that hugely changed. I also think that it it slowed down our old Mac so much. Yeah, that, that was switch the, back. That was the thing I remember is that System Seven really slowed down your computer. It, yeah, and it, I don't it, remember. I think that was. A, I think we had an LC running six, or maybe a plus or something. I don't know. Yeah, because people used to. Um, People used to complain about the old original open and save dialog boxes a lot because they were modal and they were kind of ugly. Uh, and it was System Seven actually originally didn't fix that. I forget when the the Nav Services open and save dialog boxes came about, which were a little bit more modernized UI wise. But the thing about the old open and save dialog boxes was that if you knew the keyboard commands, the command up arrow and down arrow. And you knew that you could type ahead to match items in a list, right? Like to match, if if it's a list of people's last names, I could just type fr and get yeah. Fromer. You could really fly through those dialog boxes because when you'd hit command up to go up a level in the hierarchy and down, 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 command down, command down, uh, it would update instantly. It was like you could, if you knew the incantation and knew your way around that and you weren't using the mouse, you were using the keyboard, you could kind of zip around your hard disk at the similar pace as to somebody who was an expert on like a command line system. And then when um, system seven came out, it just seemed like everything got slowed down and you'd hit command up and you'd, you'd get the watch cursor for a little bit, just little, all sorts of little things really slowed down. And that was the thing that I hated about visiting friends houses with PCs was that even though windows was, was pretty awful, it felt so fast versus, system seven and yeah. i wonder if maybe that's the kind of thing that the new mac os by will, will it be a 10 or is it are we at 11 we're not at 11 yet, no it'll we? be 10.10 10. um i wonder if that's the kind of thing that a flatter simpler ui could actually achieve like hey ps we made your computer faster uh i don't know maybe not yeah, yeah i don't know i think I feel like we've gotten to the point where even the cheapest mac can render Pretty Just, quickly. Yeah. And especially yeah. if they're going to go in a less exuberant style. Like there's certain things in the transparency in iOS that maybe they're pushing the limits on, not even maybe, they kind of are pushing the limits on some of the iOS devices that support it. True. Uh, and the parallax and stuff like that, like that they didn't have good frame rate on some of those effects. And it's gotten better with 7.1, but they were pushing, but any Mac, you know, even the cheapest mac mini which hasn't even been updated in 600 days or something like that uh can just chew that stuff up i mean the, the days when a mac can't render you know windows dropping down and stuff like that uh menus dropping down quickly it's i, I yeah. think we're past that yeah i think so too it's, well with ssds and all that yeah um, and that's a big that's definitely a big change it, i think it's kind of cool though that we you know well, uh, hopefully that's the reason that it's kind of cool that that we haven't seen any major leaks yet about what's going on. Uh, it could just mean that, that there's nothing there's nothing worth knowing. I don't know if that's yeah, I don't true, know. but um, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, and it'd be curious. The leaks often come closer to the event, right? Yeah, especially when they're software leaks. The hardware leaks kind of right have, you know have been coming too early. Right, because of the supply chain stuff. But right. when it's stuff that never left Cupertino to begin with, that typically is like the night before. Like, wasn't last year 
didn't uh, someone nine to five or someone else have the, all the icons either the night before or the morning of? Yeah, but I think that they had it as recreations somehow. Right. Yeah, someone right? had like dictated to them, and then they drew them, and they did really good. Yeah, I think I even joked about it with Mark Gurman. It was like a like a like a police sketch where the yeah. Know, and it's like a dead ringer. It's like holy hell, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know they like they like police sketched the icons, and they did a really good job. And it was, um, and they nailed it. And there was so many people, of course, because the icons were probably it's a they're the first thing you see, and b they are were kind of radically simplified. And there were so many people who were like, no way is Apple going to do icons that look right. like that. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, and then you got to wonder, you know, for the apps that have a, a the same app in OS X and iOS, do they have the same icons now? Like, does Safari get this this new icon the same as iOS, or is it still Mac has their own icon set? I don't right, know. and are they going to do a thing like give Mac icons an official shape? Like a circle. Oh, yeah. You know, interesting. You know, they've done a lot of circles. You know, like the iBooks is new and has a circle, and App Store has yep. been a circle. Um, Though the iWork numbers and that kind of stuff are still right. free, freeform shapes. Yeah, and that kind of, arbitrary shapes. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, uh, well, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised, but I, I feel like there's so much. I mean, there's what? There's got to be. 30 years of history of, of Mac icons taking whatever shape they want. Whereas iOS always had, you know, you're going to make it a little round cornered square. Right. That's true. Yeah. I used to make Mac icons. That was, uh, that was a weird hobby in oh. like <laughs> high school, I think with res edit, just kind of goofing around. Cause there was, uh, I forgot which, maybe it was eight or eight, five had, kind of these 3d folders and i would uh draw the icons of apps back then you know i wouldn't keep my apps in the apps folder i would just keep them in their own folders right in macintosh hd so there was like the cork express folder and so i made like a special cork icon for that folder actually i think cork had a good icon some of them had awful icons yeah i remember customizing icons though same thing Right, you'd either go in, you'd either go in and actually be an idiot and go in and edit the actual resource in the application, or you would make your own icon and then copy and paste it in the Finder's Get Info. Yeah, and then you could just delete it and it would go back to the regular icon for the app. Right, and then some of them I even made aliases, and I think an alias could even maybe have its own icon. Yeah, yeah, I think it could. Yeah, you could. I think I'm almost sure you could, which was crazy. It's and, and confusing. Right. Well, yeah. No one, anyone who would sit down at my computer would have no idea how to use it. But did uh, did you ever? Do you remember when? I don't remember which Mac OS. Maybe it was eight eight five or eight, which had it shipped with maybe one or two themes, and then there was the idea that there would be more themes coming, but then they just never came. Yeah, that was. I think it was. I think it was system or Mac OS eight. Uh, they didn't. That's when they stopped calling it System Eight, and right. it was the first version of Mac OS Eight. And you know, Syracuse is listening to this show right now, and his <laughs> head is exploding because he can't just jump in and correct us and tell us exactly what. I think it was eight and it was called the 
appearance manager. Yes. And the appearance manager was a control panel, and it had a list of themes. And there was Platinum, which was the default look. Uh, Gizmo, which was the one that was like a kid's theme. Looked like something from like Nickelodeon. And uh, I think it was called Techno, which was sort of the, uh, I don't know, looked like something from uh, uh, that would have been art directed for like... uh, like a Terminator movie or something like that, like a sci-fi movie where they have you know a custom theme for the GUI that the compute you know that the characters are using. Now, did you know about the uh, leaked unofficial fourth theme? Though no, I don't. There was well, the drawing board. Oh, of course, yes, that of course was awesome. I yeah, oh, that, I love that. I, yeah, I, I wish I could run that now. That would be if I could. If OS ten point ten was drawing board, I would take that. Right, drawing board made it look like an architectural sketch. It like, yeah, like the windows were made out of paper, and that the buttons and everything were sketched in by an architect. And it even shipped with an architect handwriting font. I forget the name of the font. But yeah, I don't remember. It set the system font to that. So like your menus and your window titles were in that that architect handwriting font. Uh, but I, that never shipped to customers. It shipped as no. like developer betas. So like, you know, people who were in the developer program got those themes so that you could make sure your app looked good and gizmo and techno. And you're right that the, the architectural one was the one that actually was like, maybe... Maybe I would use that. I mean, it was totally. It, it it felt like playing one of those old SimCity games where it was like back in the, or maybe I don't know, one of those Sim games where it was like the expansion set. Yeah, and you know, just was never as fun as the main SimCity, but it was cool. I I think I ran it for a couple of months. I'm not and- I'm not looking this up. I'm going from memory here. I'm trusting my memory, which is dangerous. But my under my recollection though is that this. Mac OS 8 didn't come out until after the next acquisition and the next team right. had come in and Steve Jobs was the interim CEO and Avi Tavanian was the CTO or whatever his title was. And while most of their efforts were focused on getting this next step Mac OS carbon next generation OS that they kind of had to, you know, start in 96 and build it. And they were hoping to ship it in a year and they wound up not even shipping it in 2000 till 2001 or whenever, you know, they were four or five years out from it. But in the meantime, they had to keep the company running. And so that, that team took over or at least overseeing the last few years of Mac OS evolutions, Mac OS 8, 8, 1, 8, 5, and 9, I guess was the last one. Uh, and you know, eight six two, right? Which, and they were like ready to ship it with these themes. And Steve Jobs was like, "What is this bullshit? Get it out! Get yeah. it all out! It ships with platinum. That's the, what it looks like." And so, you, it shipped with an appearance manager, and it would say theme. And there was one choice. It like so they they ripped the themes out. The alternate themes were ripped out at the last minute, but they didn't couldn't rewrite all the software. So it was this interface that looked like it was meant to have a list of themes, and it did. But there was only one to choose from. Yeah. It was it was hilarious, and I was that when you could when you could change the colors to match the different iMac colors as well, like tangerine and and lime and that kind of stuff, or was that later? I don't remember. I think that, that was, was like, later because yeah. they didn't come out until ninety eight was the original iMac, and then ninety nine was when the colored ones came out. But then they did, yeah, they had like I forget if the software could tell what color your iMac was though, and and default to it. But yeah, you could pick like highlight colors that matched your your candy colored iMac 
Now you can't do any of that stuff. But that's a, that's probably okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Is there anything? Like, I, I've gotten old and crotchety, so I don't. I don't know. I don't look either. Maybe there is. I wonder whether there's still something like that because the, there used to be something in the early days of Mac OS X where you could switch the theme. It was from right. Sanity. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, look at that appearance. You can go. Oh, guess these are these are uh, many different options here. You can pick blue or graphite, <laughs> and then you can change the highlight color. But yeah, blue or gray are your choices now. That's all right. Maybe. Um, yeah, and, and you know this is obviously now just uh, just uh, fan fiction almost. But I wonder if the Mac hardware will ever kind of more closely reflect the iOS hardware, like, you know, the 5C type plastic, like the return of the iBook or something like that. Um, it just, I, I was uh, testing out that new Microsoft Surface this week. Yeah. And it reminded me just how old the MacBook Air design is. I mean, it's now six years old almost, the current. MacBook Air, so yeah, and, it and it's does. funny because Microsoft's like, "Hey, look, this thing is lighter than a MacBook Air," but I'm like, "Yeah, that MacBook Air is six years old, man." Yeah, and it looks to me the part that really kind of looks a little dated is the uh, the bezel around the screen, right? It's right, Big so that, silver. Yeah, you've got like this inch thick frame around the screen, and that the only part that is black glass or plastic, I guess it's not glass, but you know, shiny black screen is the screen whereas on the, the macbook pros they've got this mo to me much more modern look which looks like it matches the phone it matches the ipad it matches the imac which goes edge to edge now matches the the current displays where the whole front surface is black glass or black shiny screen material and then not all of it is actually screen pixels, but it's just surrounded by, you know, black screen. The, it the, strikes me as a kind of thing that they've learned so much since then with the iPhone and with the other Macs that there's a lot of improvements they could make if they were, yeah. you know, redesigning the, the laptop from scratch today. Yeah, my my guess, though, is that they're waiting for Retina Airs. To right. update that because they Probably. just came out last month with new MacBook Airs. Yeah, I don't think they're gonna. And they're you know they're they're evol you know the latest uh, CPU kit from Intel and et cetera et cetera. But it's you know what we call in the business a speed bump update, not a major update. But given that it just came out last month, I can't imagine they're gonna go Retina soon. And I can't th therefore I think. That when they do go retina, they'll get the modern look where the whole front, when you open it up, is black. Yeah, unless they introduce that as a new line, which they kind of did with the Retina Pro, because they kept the old Pro right, around. Right. Who knows? Now this is silly. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's but, the sort of thing. That's a good question. I mean, if they did it with the Pros, they could do it. They could they can do whatever they want, right? But, but. I kind of think they wouldn't because it seems to me that that sort of bifurcation of the product line, it you can do it with a device that's pro and you kind of can't with the Air because the Air is yeah. just sort of the default. The Air is you walk in the Apple store and they say, how can I help you? And you say, I want to get a laptop. They're going to, you know, the, the odds are pretty good you're coming out with a 13-inch MacBook Air. Yeah. 
because it's just the default. It's the one that's the che- it's cheaper, you know. And and I know that the pros have gotten it's like crazy if you know, remember how much power books used to cost back in the day. Oh yeah, it's crazy that you can get a 13 inch MacBook Pro with a Retina display for 12.99. I think the starting price is, which is crazy. But 9.99 is a lot less than 12.99. You know, you're talking 25% less. Yeah. More than 25%, right? Yeah, yeah. and when you add 100 bucks for tax or whatever, it's you know, you know, and it's that there's, you know, there's it's just one of those all those every time you go up a digit, it's a magic price. Like 9.99 is a lot less than $1,000 in in people's minds. It, yeah. In real which is, life, which it's is a lovely. Dollar. In real yeah, life, right. it's a dollar, yeah. <laughs> a penny if it, if you charge the ninety nine cents. But it just feels it just feels like it's cheaper. Uh, so, are you shipping a new Vesper by WWC this year? Uh, oh, dude, it could be any day. Uh, oh, cool. Because uh, I remember that's when you launched last year, right? Yeah. I, w- I if if we were approved, I would tell you right now, but we're not. But it should be. Uh, uh, knock on wood. If everything goes through, it should be uh, before WWDC. Should be well before WWDC. Last year was it was pretty tight. And this, but this is not the sync update, or maybe you shouldn't tell me what it is. Uh, eh, I'll tell you. Don't tell anybody else though. It All is, right, it is the sync update. Oh wow. Okay. Wow, um, we uh Let me take another break before okay. we keep going, um, and tell you about our second sponsor, and it's our good friend, good friends at lynda.com lynda.com helps you learn and keep up to date with your software pick up brand new skills explore new hobbies with their easy to follow video tutorials so whether you want to learn to develop uh, apps you want to learn to program websites pick up a programming language like objective c or something more creative you want to learn how to you've got like a really good digital camera but all you do is just turn it on and press the button and you never do anything with it you want to learn how 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 can you learn to be a good amateur photographer they've got videos for that they have over 2400 courses taught by industry experts more are added weekly uh and one low monthly price 25 bucks a month gets you unlimited access to the entire lynda.com library. To me, that's key to the whole thing because you don't have to think, ah, it's two bucks for this video or three bucks for this video. I don't know if it's going to be worth it because I have to spend the three bucks to do it. You just sign up for a lynda.com account. It's unlimited. Start watching the video. If it is what you want, you've got it. If it's not, stop it. Go back. Keep looking until you find the one you do want. Uh, all of their courses are produced at the highest quality, really high production level, really good, talented teachers. So it's not at all like it's like the polar opposite of the homemade videos you find on YouTube uh, where anybody – it's a crapshoot whether it's going to help you, whether the person actually knows what they're talking about, whether the video is actually in, in technically even any good. Uh, courses are broken down into bite-sized pieces, so whether you have 15 minutes or 15 hours, you can learn at your own pace on your own terms. Uh, great deal, really great videos. Like I said, 2,400 of them. It's just unbelievable. Uh, and, and everything from technical stuff to creative stuff. Really great. They've been all around for a long time. Here's the best part. I've got to deal with them for the sponsorship of this show where you have access to their entire library free for seven days. So sign up 
for seven days, watch as many of these videos as you want. And that's how sure they are that you'll sign up afterwards. How do you do that? Go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com slash the talk show. lynda.com with a Y slash the talk show. You'll get seven days free, the whole library unlocked. Uh, if there's anything like that you're curious about and want to learn, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's great, great stuff. My thanks to lynda.com. So you mentioned your Surface Pro review or first look. This is not, yeah, not let, a review. Well, let's take a step back though. So, so since last you were on the talk show, you've picked up a new gig. You're now I don't know, forget your title, but you're like the new technology columnist at Quartz. Yes, uh, this started a week ago. Uh, I'm the tech editor at Quartz, which means I'll be writing um, several posts a week. Probably one a day, maybe a little more than that, maybe less, depending on the uh, the news flow, and then also building out a team of journalists um, around the world. Actually, that's one of the really cool things about Quartz, which uh, I guess I should explain what Quartz is. It's a relatively new business news site owned by the Atlantic uh, that started in 2012, and their whole thing is that it is what. You know, they sat down and they said, if you were starting a business news site in 2012, what would it be? Um, well, it would be designed first for phones and, and tablets and less for a desktop computer. Because that's <coughs> the talk show during Fireball. <coughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Keep going, Dan. Because uh, that's where people will be reading it. Uh, it'll be global because people fly around a lot and, and real business leaders are thinking about what's going on in Asia just as much as what's going on in at home and um, and uh, you know it, it'll have new forms of advertising and they've never really I don't I've never seen in the history of the site any standard banner ads on the site they do these special custom kind of big ads that um, that work for uh, a mobile site and for a desktop site so it's really cool the staff is uh, it's pretty small. It's really, really smart people there. The editor in chief is this guy, Kevin Delaney, who was at the Wall Street Journal for a long time and was um, one of their leading tech journalists there. So I was not looking for a job. I mean, I've been working on my startup City Notes for a long time now, and we're going to be shipping a, a brand new app in the next few months that, you know, could be a big thing someday. Um, but when the existing tech editor from Quartz left recently for the Wall Street Journal. I emailed Kevin and said, hey, man, let's let's get together and talk because I've long been a huge fan of the site. Um, I think they do really cool stuff. They uh, One of the really interesting things there is that they have a team of engineers that sit in the newsroom and work with journalists and, and our journalists themselves uh, and make little apps and interactive stories and tools for the newsroom to either do reporting or to tell stories like we have a chart building tool that um you know was made by one of the courts engineers for the courts newsroom um so it's really cool it's kind of you know if you if you were taking all the elements of a news organization and creating them from scratch you know in this era um it's a really good representation of that so i'm really excited to join the team i'm I have not been writing much lately, so I'm quite rusty, but I posted a few things last week, and 
Um, hope you'll all follow me there. It's a very simple URL designed for the mobile era. It's qz.com. Uh, you know, the, the element quartz, I believe. Is that, is that there? Uh, is that the... That's where I was. It's go. been a while since the yeah, uh, periodic table, but um, uh, it's really cool. I, I'm really happy to be there. I'll be covering, you know, the same stuff that I did on my old site, SplatF, which is Apple, Microsoft, Google, kind of big tech, mobile, um, and I'll hopefully get to do some travel as well, looking up cool stories around the world that you know most uh, desk bound tech. You know, sites aren't really touching. They do. So. They they quartz has all you know been interesting to me ever since it debuted, and it's cooler for me that somebody who I know like you is going to be writing there. But they've always had good stuff. They've always had an interesting design where it doesn't really look like anybody else's stuff. Uh, they were really early to me on that the, the infinite scroll, where when you keep get you get to the end of a, of an article and instead of the bottom of the page, they just sort of algorithmically predict well this might be something else you're interested in you can close the window if you want but if you want to keep scrolling down here's another article yeah and that's you know for better or worse i think it works really great on mobile when you know hey if you're still connected to the network here's something else to read um sometimes with the computer it's a little uh frustrating because you want to share the previous story that you'd read and then all of a sudden you're at the next one but they've right. written that you know again they have Engineers in the newsroom, so they're making changes in real time as right. they um, decide whether something's working or not. Well, that and reminds me of Adrian Holovati. You, do you know Adrian Holovati? He was like I know the name. Co- I don't co-creator know. of the Django Python framework okay. and a bunch of other stuff from Chicago. But he's been on, I mean, longer than anybody, and maybe even close to a decade. But at least from like 2006, 2007, on programming as journalism. Hmm. You know that that it's uh, now that the that the output device for so much journalism is a computer that it's not a piece of paper with ink on it and it's not a TV screen getting something broadcast to millions of people identically that it's this device that can compute that it's almost criminal not to take advantage of it that and that we can't you can't just hire or not can't but that the way to take advantage of it is not just to hire programmers to build you a CMS and then they go away and you're, you just sit there and type text into it and paste pictures into it, but that they're a full-time part of the team. In the same way that a TV studio, a TV news, is always going to have cameramen, that a, a website should always have programmers. Yeah. And that you wouldn't, the same way that you wouldn't get rid of cameramen at a TV station, you know, you wouldn't just have them come in at the beginning and set the cameras up in the studio and say, here's the angles they should be at. Now you're on your own. Just just hit this button when you want the camera to record. You know, you wouldn't want to you don't want to dismiss the programmers after they've built the system. No. And I think like having worked in a few newsrooms now there in many organizations, there tends to be a combative relationship between product and um, and the journalists because, you know, Sure, every CMS has flaws. So if you're just sitting around and and ragging on this crappy CMS, you know you're you're probably not um, thinking the the nicest thoughts about the people who made it for you, yeah. um, and often are you know trashing them. Whereas if they're sitting next to you and you are working on stuff together, um, it's a really cool opportunity. Uh, it's also made me personally realize that I need to learn to code too. Um, 
you know, I've been programming websites since the mid '90s, so I've known HTML and later CSS since you know since it was a thing. But I never took the dive into kind of more advanced stuff. And now I realize, especially the last six months, um, working with my friend Mark Dorison on City Notes, uh, kind of feeling like a helpless loser, not being able to help out with um, with building our iOS stuff. So. I know it's going to take a lot of time, but and it's kind of corny, but in this era, it feels like coding skills are almost like freedom. So that's I don't wanna, one of the things I'm going to spend some of my spare time on now. Yeah, and I've already started, actually. I don't want to abuse the metaphor, but I'll compare it to uh, camera work again, where you know there was a time when it was so comp, you know, in the film days when you had so much going on just to take pictures, where you know not many people learned to take photographs but now everybody has cameras with them all the time and not that everybody is going to be a pro photographer and not that you are going to become a top-notch developer but it's like you should have you know maybe everybody should have a basic fluency in it you know yeah be able to right. write a little code and everybody should learn a little bit so you can take a decent picture like maybe and especially oh well, you know, you're out, you're a journalist, you see something, you should be able to get as good a photograph as your, you know, your iPhone is capable of taking. I think also the mobile era, you know, has a lot to do with it, at least for me, because back in the day, like I would buy, oh boy, I bought like student edition of, uh, what was it, Code Warrior? What, were mm -hmm. the, what was the old, you yeah. know, and I tried learning that. I bought books like Learn C on the Macintosh. Met and this Metro was, Works. Yeah, right. And it never took, like I never got past Hello World, in part because, I, you know, I'd sit there at my desk and think, well, if I could make a Mac app, what would I make? I'm not going to make like an email client or something like that. So, and then the web came out, so I just kind of started goofing around on the web. But now in the iPhone era, like I have an unlimited list of cool apps that I would want to make. And... Um, and, and so one of the things that's, that, that has kind of stuck with me over the last week is I've been um, starting to learn JavaScript, uh, just kind of getting my feet wet, is it's strange and unfortunate that there is no kind of iPad-native programming environment. And maybe I'm totally missing it, but there, I've never heard of one that that's, has any traction or has any acclaim. And, you know, I so I'm like, you know, starting with these programming lessons and i have to sit at my computer at a desk yeah. um and it There's feels it feels weird in this okay yeah i don't know about that c-o-d-e-a uh definitely worth checking out okay cool uh, i forget the one this wouldn't be good for you it's more for kids there's a great one for kids that jonas has on his ipad oh it's, cool it's less code and a little bit more visual uh codia is probably one worth checking out people on uh people who are out there send us twitter send it hit us up on twitter yeah, with. From Dome on Twitter is my uh, Twitter handle. Let me know uh, what what I should be doing. All right, <laughs> any, no, that's a good any question. noob noob tips? Um, but you know, it, and this is one of the things like I cover at during the day is the post PC shift. Like I did an article this week at Quartz about um, tablet sales are actually on pace to match PC sales this year, or at least come very close, and by next year far surpass them. Um, but you still can't make a tablet app on a tablet. Yeah. Which, well, and that's the problem and, that Kodia yeah. ran into is that they ran into – it's out. You could get it, but they've run into a lot of hassle with the App Store in terms of 
Like you oh, can do like the interpreting code or something. Well, like that? I think that they're using JavaScript. So the rule, oh, okay. there's a rule that you're not supposed to include a third party interpreter. But if you want to have interpreted code, you could use WebKit's JavaScript and and have at it. But you can't. They wanted to have it where you could maybe like save your sample project, and then I could download your sample project and run it in Codia. But then all of a sudden, that runs afoul of the "Hey, are you distributing apps?" Right? Yeah. Like you make a game in Codia, and then you send me the game thing, and now I can open it in my copy of Codia, and I have a new game running, and I didn't get it through the App Store, and so that was like they. So I forget all the crazy hoops they have to jump through, but it's it makes it all it's all worse for the overall experience for the benefit of Apple's uh, control over all app distribution. And uh, you know there are there are constraints like you know typing in stuff on an iPad is kind of annoying still, and I get it. Right. But it'd be cool if either Apple or a third party were to come out with a fairly you know sophisticated um, yet iPad designed coding environment. Yep. Well, maybe, remember, remember, maybe when I'll we were, do it, right? <laughs> remember when we were kids and we would get magazines with programs in them, right? It would be yeah. like, you know, here's a program that, you know, here's a simple one. I mean, this is stupid. You could write this in 10 lines or, you know, three lines of basic, you know, but, you know, enter your weight on Earth. Here's what you weigh on the moon and here's what you would weigh on Jupiter. And then you would type it into your, you know, your Apple II or your TI-99 4A basic, and then you'd save it, and then you'd type run the name of the program, and it would run. But to, to, to duplicate these programs, they were printed in magazines, and you'd sit the magazine next to the computer and type them in. And that, That's how I learned a lot of HTML, actually, right. from the Net Magazine it, teaching me, like, tables and that kind of stuff. You know, and it's crazy that when when now that we've invented things like the internet and copy and paste and downloading right. and stuff like that, that that's sort of how you have to use Codia because they don't want you to distribute things that you just tap and open and run, and so you're stuck retyping all this stuff. It's you know, but anyway, it's worth checking out. Yep. Yeah, and I remember actually, I think Google made some sort of very simple Android, um, you know, pro like almost drag and drop programming tool but i don't think it took off and no. they probably shut it down you know what like that, that's but. an interesting point because android doesn't have the 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 iron-fisted control over executing code that that by design not not like it's you know right. this is a weakness this is a a difference of opinion you know so you know you could buy a nexus and you know stock app you know this is the stock google android device a nexus whatever the latest phone is and you can go into settings and say allow, you know, applications from third parties, and then it'll say, "Are you sure this is, you know, could open you up to security problems?" You say, "Don't worry, I know what I'm doing," and then you can install apps from anywhere, and you, you know, with no developer signing and stuff like that, you can just install apps on your device. Um, so there's an opportunity there where they could have something like a a sort of next generation hypercard, right? I mean that's totally. that's what everybody always comes back to is they come back to hypercard because hypercard and the reason people keep coming back to hypercard is that hypercard when people you know if 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 I don't know what the percentage of people who can program is let's just ballpark and say five percent of people if they want to, can program like an Objective-C apps. It's probably lower than that. I would say less than one. But yeah, let's say, yeah. all right, let's be more realistic. 0.5%. Let's, let's say 1% of people have that 
that aptitude and it's a combination of of ability and desire because it's so hard and complicated you you just can't make yourself do it unless you're driven to do it and absolutely you know hypercard was a thing where way more maybe 5% of people who looked at hypercard and had ideas for a little thing they could program or you know if you click a button this happens and you could click this button and then you'd have a list of things that you could drag and drop to rearrange uh that there was way more people who could just look at it, get it, and 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 not in terms of intelligence, I think, entirely, although part of it is clearly intelligence, but it's also that that level of obsession where if it was so much easier to do it and you didn't have to commit so much and learn at such a low level, you'd be willing to do it. You'd be willing to try. You know, yeah, a little it, less abstract. It's not, you know, uh, a text editor with gibberish in it. It there's a lot more right. visual aspects. They to it. Ju- it just removed a lot of friction, and it just and the lack of friction would encourage more people to try it. In the same way that digital photography, you know, it, ultimately yep. the best pictures we take are they any better than the best pictures that were taken fifty? 60 years ago? No. But way more pictures are being taken, period, because there's so much less friction. You just turn on these simple devices and exposure is computed automatically. Um, you know, the, the aperture is computed automatically. And it's friction is removed. And so people do it. And that's what HyperCard was. HyperCard was like a point-and-shoot camera for programming. And there's yeah, nothing... All right, well, let's get that for iOS. Right. So if... if sh- Phil Schiller, if you're listening, I'll help you out with this. We'll uh, we'll do it. Yeah, I think, and I think people's, you know, people have tried stuff like that, and I think sometimes people maybe get caught up because they want to boil the ocean all at once, and they think, well, let's not just do iOS. Let's do iOS and Android, and let's have it right. run in web browser too, so that anybody you could open it. I say start simple and maybe you know do that down, but get do it and have it just run on the iPad, right? And then Absolutely. worry about yeah. worry about. Uh, other things next. Get it running on the iPad and then expand to the iPhone and then think about Android and then, you know, but get it running one place at first. Anyway, I think Google has an opportunity there to do something Apple couldn't because Google could build a thing like that and not worry about the distribution of these, you know, the in HyperCard parlance, the stacks, right? HyperCard was the app and it ran stacks. Whatever you want to call them, but you know that you they could allow people to distribute these things to other Android users, and not they don't care if you're not going through the Play Store anymore. Totally, yeah, and and I think they started to try it, but then they, I don't know what happened with that weird thing that they made. Maybe yeah. it was just too simple. I, I, don't, I, remember, I don't remember. I think it was a typical Google thing where somebody, you know, some three people built the thing and there was never yeah. really anything behind it. And they were like, well, ship it. You know, who cares? And then nobody ever right. yeah. even remembers it anymore. Yeah. And Mac kind of has that with Automator, but that's, you know, well, not really. That's not even close yeah. to HyperCard. But the, I remember in the early Automator days, actually, my friend ran a site called Automator World which was, you know, a community of automator uh, recipes or whatever they were called. And that was pretty cool. But Automator's cool, and AppleScript still remains, you know, it's alive and well, but it's not thriving. You right. Know, and it's no, nobody's, not at all. You know. Uh, but, you know, there's little signs of health for it. Like, for example, I mean, clear, the biggest sign of health for AppleScript to me is that when the new versions of iWork 
apps came out, the new pages, numbers, and uh, Keynote with this unified file format across iOS and the web and the Mac apps. And they took out all these, you know, all these features that were in the Mac were gone because they'd, they'd, you know, solidified the whole platform on this common denominator of features. Apple script was gone, but in the months since they've, they've brought it back. I don't think that they've brought it entirely back, but it's mostly back, you know, that most of the things you could do in Apple script and those apps before you can do again. You know, it clearly yeah, wasn't enough of a priority to be there in their initial release, but it's enough of a priority that they got to it with before before the end of the year. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, do you buy into the concept of uh, multi-view? You know, two apps, two up apps on iOS, or because I've been playing with that Surface, let's, and I was let's hold that. Let me do the third sponsor. Yeah. Okay, and let's cool. let's combine that with uh, that for iOS combined with the Surface. Okay, great. Um, third sponsor, final sponsor of the show. Great, great company. Uh, Harry's. What does Harry's provide? They provide um, men's shaving goods. So the team behind Harvey's is their, their uh, I think one of the founders is one of the guys from Warby Parker, uh, the eyeglass people, also a sponsor of the show. Uh, same basic idea, though, where Warby Parker's thing was, why in the world are prescription eyeglasses so crazy expensive? Um, the team with Harry's is like, why does it cost so much to buy razor blades uh, to shave? Why is this stuff so crazy expensive? Well, it doesn't have to be. Uh, so what they've done is they've gone right to the source. They've, they're making, they even make their own razor blades. They purchased a 93-year-old German factory that makes precision engineered german engineered razor blades so they're making their own blades they're not just like white labeling something that they're buying you know from some abandoned factory or something they're making brand new blades brand new razors to hold them really cool stylish stuff really good uh equipment uh and it gets shipped right to your door they focus on providing men with a great shaving experience for a fraction of the price of the big name competitors, at least half the price of other brand name razor blades, better product design, less, but better. None of these fancy, you know, no, no fake Chrome and stuff like that. Plastic stuff. You just go take a look at their stuff and you'll see what I mean. It's, it's classic design, not like the fake good design. Like you see from the Gillette or, uh, the other companies like that. Uh, Easy convenience. You don't have to go to a drugstore where all the shaving stuff is locked behind a cabinet because people shoplifted or something like that. You just order online and it shows up uh, at your door. So you don't have to go out. I don't want to go out buying stuff like that. Really good. They've sent me a kit when I when they first signed on as a sponsor and I've used it. Great stuff. It's you know it's good good shaving cream, good uh, good razor blades, great stuff. So what do you do? How do you take advantage of this? Well, they have a promo code. Talk show, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W. That's the promo code. And here's the offer. Use that promo code and you save five bucks off your first purchase. Now, the prices are already low. Just go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Use that promo code and then five bucks off your first purchase. And it was already great prices. Go there, check it out. Uh, they have a $15 kit that gives you a handle, Three sets of blades and shave cream. That's a great deal. It's everything you need to get started. Fifteen bucks. Uh, 
And they even have a custom engraving option if you want to get your initials on the razor or if you want to give it as a gift. Father's Day is coming up. God, it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, so my thanks to Harry's. Go to harrys.com and remember the, the promo code TALKSHOW. No the, just TALKSHOW. Uh, so my thanks to them. The, uh, uh, the other Harry's guy, the non-Warby Parker guy, yeah. is an old friend of mine. Oh, really? Yeah, his, his wife married me. She not not married me. She officiated our wedding. <laughs> there is a big difference. <laughs> there is a big difference. Yeah, he was there too. Yeah. It was cool. Well, that's um, actually you know that's not like a, hey I met him the one time. That's no, actually no. like the guy was there for an important uh, pertinent. Yeah, in your life. yeah. No, he he's a good guy. That, that's a that's a, a really neat company that is uh, smartly vertically integrated, uh, yeah. much like Warby Parker and. Yeah. A massive industry full of a bunch of clowns. So I hope they do really well. Yeah, I love all these stories of people who are getting into hardware of any yeah. kind. Oh yeah, you know? and 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 I feel like there's so many opportunities. You know, we our our whole generation we were all digital for so long, and the web was such an eye opener. And we all built websites and spent you know first decade, two decades of our professional careers shipping ones and zeros, and it was awesome. And I still you know. Everything I do is still mostly ones and zeros, right? <laughs> Vespers digital, <coughs> daring fireballs digital, even the show is digital, um, although not entirely. And I'll get back to that. Um, but I just love these people who are taking the same sort of let's just stay lean and mean and vertically integrated and not have the waste of like a Procter and Gamble gazillion headcount conglomerate totally behind it. Uh, yeah, let's let's take this thing and let's just do it right. Let's right. you know, let's start without all the baggage right. and and do it right. And ultimately, it ends up being cheaper for the consumer and it's in crazy. many cases better. I I feel like in a, you know it's like a it's like something that nobody really imagined. But like to me, going down the the consumer aisles in like a drugstore or like a Target, if you're in the you know like shopping for deodorant or toothpaste or shaving cream or something like that, it, like forty or fifty years ago, it would look like something out of science fiction. Like the way that when you go to buy Crest, you you have to choose between literally like twelve or fifteen kinds of Crest. You know that it, it used you know used to be you'd switch between. Crest and Colgate, yeah, right? And they were the rivals. And then, like they've they've gotten into this race to take up shelf space. And the only way they'll get the shelf space if, is if they have a bunch of varieties. So they have like yeah, twenty. They each have their own aisle at this point. Yeah, twenty different <laughs> kinds of crest to choose from, or or edge shaving gel. There's there's seventeen kinds of it. And like I I mean I, I don't know which one to get. I mean I'm not an expert on it. Like I like these startups that are you know it's like here look here's good shave cream. Here it is. Yeah, Harry's. Yeah, there's one flavor. Yeah, here it is, and, and it's uh, good. Here it is. Use it, and and that's it. Yeah, yeah, I do. I love it. Uh, anyway, I I mean it. I know they're a sponsor. I am literally getting paid to tell you to go check them out, but I mean it. There, it's it's what I love about the show and doing this and getting these sponsors like this is that to me they're doing fascinating and great work. I really. But that's actually, and not to you know plug your show, but that's part of. Of doing that right is actually being in the right place to promote your company. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's, Procter and Gamble, to my knowledge, is not sponsoring tech podcasts. No, but if it I wanted don't... to reach the types of people that you know load up Amazon and drop a hundred bucks on nonsense, that uh, that would be a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, tablets. 
Yes. So you were at the Surface announcement? Yeah, it was very strange. I was it was like one of the first emails I got to my new Quartz address was, "Hey, do you want to come to this uh, Surface thing next week?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And I didn't even know what it was. I thought I, I had no idea. Like I I didn't realize it was the unveiling of a new Surface. Like I I didn't realize that. Cuz you're not as tuned into that world as you are the Apple world where No, you know, right. And yeah. they're they're not on that regular schedule that Apple has, right? Yeah, and it's in New York and it's Tuesday, I don't know. So I, I just wasn't expecting that. And then I showed up and they're like, here's the new Surface and here's one to take with you. And um, it was it was interesting. So they did um, give you one to take with you? Yeah, I got I have one. It's um, in my desk at the office. I don't have it here in front of me. But um, it was in, you know, Satya Nadella, the new CEO of Microsoft was there. He kicked off the event. Uh, and what he said sounded good, actually, which was, you know, I'd seen Balmer and Gates speak a few times at various things, and it always seemed like a lot of puffed up kind of corporate speak. And and Satya actually sounded more human. And, you know, what he said was smart, that they're making these devices and that every single product has to fit into their cloud strategy and all this stuff. Um, And then the guy who came on and kind of demoed the hardware was kind of a bozo, and they were making all these really stupid jokes about Joanna Stern, the new Wall Street Journal reviewer. I don't know if you watched the video. It was just really awkward and not not funny at all. I didn't watch the video, but I was following along on Twitter and I got the gist that they were making they were referencing Joanna a lot. Yeah, and like, it was kind of funny the first time, but then they did it like four more times. Hmm. It was can you imagine like uh, you know, Phil Schiller stopping an Apple keynote four times to rib Walt Mossberg about something. Right. Like, or me. Right. What if he did yeah, it to me? Right. right. Hey, hey, John, remember that post you wrote? Right. And, and maybe once is kind of funny. Um, well, know, and they, I guess it's because Joanna, uh, who she was just on the show uh, a couple months ago, but uh, talking about these issues with tablets and laptops and can tablets, uh, it was right after she had done, I'm sure this is why they referenced her is that she's done. She's been on this beat for a couple of years now of, you know, what's the ideal form factor for like a one and a half, one to two pound portable computer that you're going to do real work on? Is it a tablet? If so, how do you put it in your lap? How do you get a keyboard? How do you type fast? If it's not, if it's a laptop, you know, does it have a touchscreen? What, 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 where is this going? She's written a lot about it and she's right. done I, it's fantastic work reviewing a, a wide variety of stuff. So I'm sure that's why they. Yeah, I think she came from reviewing laptops. So she right. has. Probably, you know, if if not the best, one of the best kind of uh, hi- histories in her brain of the evolution of these devices. Right. So it makes sense that they would reference her during a, a keynote, I suppose, once. But then, I don't know. It was, it, was just, it was very weird. I think I tweeted something like, Microsoft, you're still so Microsoft or something like that. Right. And, and she it, was it there. Just, she that's, she, she was there in the front row. And right. she had... She was curious why she was in the front row, and then she found out why. It's because she was part of the uh, part of the play. <laughs> she like um, went to take like a regular seat in the middle, and they're like, "No, no, no." Yeah, right. <laughs> Down in front, Joanna. Yeah. So some of the stuff they did was actually kind of funny. Like you know, they made they kind of self deprecating comment about how everybody in the audience was typing on a MacBook Air, um, but then uh, I don't know. Then it kind of dragged along. And then I grabbed my Surface and, and got out of there. 
Yeah, that's funny. That's like an interesting. I saw. I, I and and they definitely. I definitely noticed that they made a joke about the fact that uh, the MacBook Air is like stock issue for mid. I don't know what we call this decade. The tens. You know, in the tens, tech journalists have MacBook Airs. It's just. Uh, it's just ridiculous what percentage and that i you know most of my press events are apple events but even at like build when i was at build the you know in the press room not everybody and clearly there's a lot of windows devices in the build press room but there was a crazy amount of macbook airs too crazy yeah and at this thing it was pretty much all macs uh it i rarely see windows pcs in my life which is kind of funny but right uh, well, good life, the, I guess. I'm the thing to remember is that journalists, most of them, are on a tight deadline. You know, they've got to file. If they're there today to cover the Microsoft Surface event, they've got to have something ready to go pretty soon after the end. And a lot of people now, a lot most sites now, they're taking photos and they're putting photos in. And there's, it's more than just typing in a text area field and hitting a button. There's, you know, a CMS production system. And, you know, you kind of need your, you know, I don't test that many devices, but a lot of people do. But in terms of actually doing the work of covering the event, you want your go-to trusty, this is my oh, main yeah. thing. And it's got all the apps I need to, you know, get into the CMS to, you know, format this the way I want it formatted, to get the photos into where the photos go in the CMS so I can put them in the article and all this. And... For most of the people working today, it's a, it's a MacBook Air. Totally, and you know, especially if you're carrying it around, um, the Air is an amazing portable computer. So then, you know, Microsoft's argument seems to be that a tablet with a keyboard is better than a laptop because, and then they have different. You know, one was that it's lighter. Than a MacBook Air, which right. I don't, I don't. It, when you put that big keyboard thing on there, it's. I don't think it's lighter. I don't. Well, know. Well, their I'm, comparison, and, and this is to me, it's everybody called this out. Is that their weight comparison was the n uncovered surface compared right. to the MacBook Air, which has an attached cover. And if the if thirteen inch six year old MacBook Air versus the you know brand new uncovered. 12-inch Well, the fact surface. that the design is six years old doesn't... Uh, that's fair game. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's still because, shipping. Right, so. and it's they just came out with new ones last month, you know. Right. That's fair game, but I, I, it, it just doesn't seem like a fair comparison to say, here, here's this device where a big part of it is that we've built this great cover with a keyboard and a great, a much improved over last year's trackpad, and then when we compare it to this device that has a built-in keyboard and trackpad, we're not going to put the cover on when we talk yeah. about the weight. Right. Yeah. So that's, I mean, and that's also the kind of thing like, okay, but in your backpack with a few other things, there's really, in, in use, I will say there's, there's no noticeable difference in, you know, how light one of those things feels next to the other one. Um, yeah, and that's not even really the point. Like weight is not really the deciding factor in this. It's, is this better for, and I guess they're straight up just going after people who are using this for work. Like, yeah. you know, if you're the kind of person who is doing work on a laptop, which is really the only thing I use my laptop now for is straight up work, uh, is a tablet with a keyboard better? And it's still, 
to me, it just felt off. Um, and I haven't used it much, and I, I really should use it more. But the idea of balancing this heavy screen and with this lighter keyboard that that's kind of attached to it, but not very rigid, just seems very awkward. Um, I just I would always rather have a laptop, and then you know for the stuff that I use a touch tablet for, have a separate tablet that is you know really designed for that and you know, hardware and software and size and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, For weight to really matter, it has to be like a next level. I mean, it's it's all a little arbitrary, but it's got to be like, hey, this is actually like a game changer. And an example I'll, I'll bring up is the MacBook Air. Totally. Where a year ago when it was the iPad 3 and then the 4, and these were the when the when the Retina iPad still had the full bezel around the whole size. Doesn't matter; they were the same weight, the three and the four, versus the first generation iPad Mini. It was like, well, this one has it's a lot faster and has a beautiful Retina screen, but man, it's so much heavier than the Mini, which doesn't have a Retina screen and it's using year old you know system on a chip. But man, is it light and it, it just seemed like a real easy, easier decision. Do you want to go lightweight and easier to carry around, or do you want to go beautiful screen, a little bit heavier? Whereas this year with the Air, it was so much lighter. Like I, I, everybody who was at the original press event, you know, the last October for the iPad, everybody was like, "Geez, I don't know how to decide which one of these to get now because the Air is so much lighter." It's the whole reason I wanted a mini in the first place was it was easy to hold in one hand, but this is easy to hold in one hand because it yep. was so much lighter than what came before. the The Surface Pro is not like that. The Surface no. Pro is over a pound, so it's it's you know it's not and it's heavy, thick. It's not right. It's not, and that's fine. I mean, it's you know I, I guess it's thinner than a laptop uh, and maybe a little lighter than one, but it's not the difference. To me, the the best example is still actually the MacBook Air versus my old plastic MacBook, which was so heavy that I dreaded carrying it around. Whereas the, the, the minute I got the 13-inch MacBook Air, it was the first computer I'd ever owned that I'm happy just to take anywhere. It, it never is annoying to, to right. carry it around. Uh, and there were other benefits too, like the battery life and that kind of stuff. But this, so the Surface is not like that. Um, and I don't know, I. Again, I should use it more, and I'm not a Windows guy, so the OS is kind of foreign to me still. Uh, although I did uh, pop open Twitter and Internet Explorer side by side, and that was actually pretty cool. Like I would totally. So how does how what is the interface for for putting two apps side by side instead yeah. of taking um, over the full screen? I'm sure there is a way to do it that is the actual way to do it, but in my case, it was poke around until it happened by accident um it's some secret gesture like swiping in from one of the sides or something like that which again i'm sure there's there's an actual right way to do it i just haven't figured that out yet so See, that's my and you asked like and i wrote about this this week is yeah. that you know i'm not opposed to it and there, you know it's there's i got some pushback but like i wrote something i was like to put it in you know ranzian terms michael to steal michael lop's twitter shtick you say I want to run two apps side by side on my iPad, and I hear I want the iPad to become more complicated. 
Right. And that doesn't mean that I think that they shouldn't do it or that they're not going to do it. But all I want to shine a light on is that if they do it, no matter how clever it is, it will therefore make the iPad more complicated than it was before. Maybe justly so. Maybe it's a good decision. You know, when, when, when the iPhone couldn't copy and paste, when you couldn't select text and copy and paste, uh, adding that made the iPhone more complicated. And I think everybody would agree uh, it was complication for the better. Yes, it's more complicated, but it's better now because it's just so essential. Maybe Apple will come up with something for side-by-side -side apps that will look at the same way, and it'll work for everybody. But to me, I think about it as a UI designer, and I can't think of anything that really is uh, approachable that most people would use it. To me, it, the only things I can think of are something where you double-tap the home button to go into the multitasking thing and then drag drag those little window versions that you see in the the multitasking, somehow drag two of them together and they Yeah, become... and I, I just thought of that too independently, so maybe we're onto something there. Um, yeah, but I would, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's only going to work for apps that explicitly support it because it's a new... Yeah. It's, half the screen is going to be a new pixel and resolution. And what if it's an app that you ran a long time ago, the other one that you want on there? Right, and it's not updated. Find it. Right, how are they going to tell you, how are they going to suggest to you that this app is, you can select it? Ah, yeah. You know, right. I don't know. Right. Turn the other ones black and white? I don't know. Have hmm. them bounce? I don't, I, it's, it's a complicated, a, a complex question, UI yeah. design-wise. I mean, it's kind of like how you join phone calls that are in session. Yeah. You can either put one on hold start another one and then join the two of those or yeah. you can put one on hold and create a new one and then join them but it's it's not that simple because right. that's just kind of running audio running in the background whereas this is if it takes three or four taps to get two of them together you don't want to have it completely undone by just hitting the home button once to do something else Right. If you've set this up and it's taken three or four taps and you've got your Twitter client running next to Safari and oh, I got to check. Which is like my ideal like living room setup. Right, right? but I quick want to check my email because there's a thing I want to copy and paste from the email to put into the Safari, and then you hit the home button. You don't want to have to rebuild that Twitter yes. thing. You want to be able to somehow go back to it, and I don't know what that is because the only thing you can go back to in iOS as we know it is an app. Right, and then on the Surface, if I recall correctly, the way that that works is that it basically starts a third window and you can then decide where that w third window goes, yeah. if anywhere. I don't have it in front of me, so maybe I'm, that's you know, a false memory, but that's what it seemed like. So, you know, uh, I know Mark Gurman said they're working on it, although he did not say that they're doing it for sure. It seems to me like he doesn't even have that much stuff this year in terms of what's for sure, other than, like, the health book thing. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't like to bet on that. I wouldn't bet on seeing that next week. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I would like it if it were elegant. Um, you know, the Twitter on the iPad is, you know, the same width column that it should be on a phone and then it's taking up the rest of the screen. So it'd be really cool to have Twitter as like a side yeah. bar while I'm, you know, whatever, using Safari or email or anything like that. Um, but as you say, they'll have to do it in a way that that is elegant and makes sense. Otherwise, they're messing with their 
clean yeah. OS. So. Uh, the other thing that they would be messing with, and German acknowledged this in his report, where he's like, "I don't even, I don't know." And there's no word on whether it would be for the full size iPad Air only or for the iPad Mini too. But the thing is, is just in terms of the physical, just physical size, half of the iPad Mini screen is not a lot of screen. Yeah, but in terms of pixels, it's the same as an Air, isn't it? Well. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. In terms of pixels, it's the same. But now you're talking about a lot, a very small physical space. And yet, yeah. to date, the the OS is exactly the same. Pixel for pixel is exactly the same between the two. There's nothing you can do on the one on the air that you can't do on the other just because it's bigger. Everything is pixel for pixel the same. Right. But I can't help but think that if you're going to split it in half, it may not work out as well. Yeah, and, that would be know, an interesting thing to do some some mock-ups of i mean and that was the most compelling thing to me about that surface is wow this is what a 12 inch touchscreen feels like this is kind of cool like i could see yeah that a, was the... a big ipad and that was kind of the angle of my piece about this was hey i could actually see a big ipad being useful like my you know my kind of dream setup now would be a big ipad that i don't really take places and then a big iphone that kind of replaces my small ipad mm. uh but i don't you know now i'm just fantasy designing <laughs> apple hardware which is not something that i'm right. probably supposed to be doing but uh, but i'm excited for it though i mean just in terms of if it does come out i i I, I can't help but think that the only if it is going to come out that they've got something really thoughtfully designed because i don't think they're under any market pressure to do it no right so so microsoft has been banging the drum for this sort of uh, not technical multitasking, not computer science, two, two processes running on the same operating system at the same time, but visual multitasking, two things on screen at the same time, Twitter and a YouTube video or, you know, your email and a web browser on screen yeah, at or, the same time. You know, for, for my work, uh, a web browser and Excel or something like that. So I could get data and and spreadsheet it at the right. same time. And it certainly like hasn't. Microsoft, having gotten to it first two years ago, I guess, or a year and a half ago, hasn't really helped them make a dent, put a dent in the tablet market. So it's not like Apple's under, under um, market pressure to do so. In the same way that they seem to be under market pressure to come out with a bigger iPhone. Right. And oh, that yeah. That's... It, you know, that there are people who are buying other brand phones because they want a bigger phone. I, you know, how big of that market, how, you know, how many people there are, you could argue about, but you inarguable that it's a, a number worth caring about. Totally. Yeah. Whereas I don't see that for this multitasking on tablets. To me, they're not going to do it unless they have something clever. So I'm excited because if they show it, I feel like we're going to see something pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, and, and one of the things I was thinking about then is and as you mentioned they just microsoft has not caught any traction with with tablets no. and or phones um i wonder if they should make a laptop or is that too competitive with all their right, partners partners i don't know yeah. how is I don't it know. to me they've already broken the seal i think they kind of have haven't yeah. they but see here's the thing i think though and this is what i took away from the coverage last week and your piece in particular is that to me it seems like what they were saying at last week's event is that they think this is the future of the laptop. Right. A tablet that a tat, you know, a you know, the screen part is a tablet and the keyboard part a t detaches. Yeah. And it's a cover. 
And to me, that's why they kept bringing up the MacBook Air, or not Mac, yeah, MacBook Air, not the iPad, that they weren't talking about iPads, really, they were talking about the MacBook Air, that they're saying, if you want to do work, this is the form factor, you know, and like the way I put it is that they're saying this tablet form factor isn't just for iOS type devices, media stuff, simplified, well, and not just media stuff, but simplified one thing at a time a simple system that anybody can kind of get the gist of, you know, you, you tap an app, you're in the app, you tap home, you go back to your apps and that's it. Uh, they're saying this form factor is useful for more complicated systems like windows or, you know, in theory, now Microsoft isn't saying it, but in theory that they're, they're, they're by implication, they're saying that Apple is wrong not to be doing a Mac OS device in this form factor. Yeah, and that this is your next laptop. It's this tablet. Right. Uh, that Apple Apple's stance is that the form factors are tied to the complexities of the systems. That the simple tablet form factor is meant for the simple iOS interface and that the more complicated MacBook form factor with the attached keyboard and a trackpad and this layer of abstraction between the trackpad and the pointer on screen is inherently suited to the more complex OS, Mac OS. Hmm. Yeah. And Microsoft is saying that, I, you know, that to me is what I took away from it, is they're saying, no, this form factor is the future of portable computing for any level of complexity. Yeah. And then, well, the, the, tr- the trouble I had with that was that the minute they got into anything rather complicated, immediately the stylus came out mm-hmm. and the keyboard. So uh, is that better, you know, than... A, just a, a keyboard that's and not a touchscreen. I suppose for some applications it is like you know you link to the people drawing on it and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't you know I don't know if that's better than a than a purpose designed drawing tablet like one of the Wacom Wacom whatever they're called. Yeah. Long term uh, though, what I I've always thought about with that and that yeah Wacom and I forget who else and you know apparently the the, the Surface is really good for this. Uh, I think he's Gabe, the Penny Arcade guy, who's the artist, uh, who's been using one for a while, and he has, you know, had the got the Surface Pro three right away, and says it's really good um, for d- precision drawing in a way that that iPad screens are not precise like that. Um, but there's nothing that stops Apple from eventually making an iPad that has a screen that that's that is that precise. And right, I don't think they'll ever ship with a stylus, but they could make one that you could get a third party stylus that would have professional level precision. Yeah, I actually bought a Kickstarter stylus that was the most precise like iPad stylus I've seen so far. Uh, very th- small tip, and it's it's all right, but I just don't really have any use for it, so yeah. I don't, I never use it. But um, Syntec, Syntec, is that the other one? It's like a, uh, I think the Pixar people. I don't remember. Use. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's what, I don't know. I I'm not sold on on that. I'm not sold, and I'm sure there. My, my guess is that this will be the most successful tablet PC ever made because. That's basically saying that more than yeah. 20 people will buy it. But I, you know, when I think about writing a lot or, you know, building a, a document in a spreadsheet program or doing graphic manipulation, I'm still much happier with a keyboard and a real trackpad uh, than 
than what they're shipping. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say that they can't keep improving it, but it's just like that that keyboard still feels like a cheapo add-on keyboard yeah. relative to the real rigid kind of bottom half of a of a good laptop. Let me let me just type it right here and be, <laughs> cut off all the people who are probably already halfway through emailing me. Cintiq, C I N T I Q <laughs> is it's a line of uh touchscreen tablets from Wacom. Oh cool. So that's that that's that's what I was thinking of, but that's why you thought Wacom. It's Wacom's line of touchscreen tablets. Do you think they would do that Apple would do a touchscreen Mac OS mm. device whether it's a MacBook with touch? No. Yeah. I really think no. no. I think we're I think we're more likely to see a laptop iOS device than a touchscreen Mac. Huh, interesting. I just you know what though? Well I don't think that they'll announce the hardware uh, next week, but that's something to keep an eye on when they show us Mac OS 10.10 is look at what... How oh, the chips... Well, no, look at how big the screen, the elements are on screen. Oh, are okay. they spaced in such a way that they look like they're amenable to big fat fingers? Ah, interesting. Yeah, right? because Mac then... OS as we know it is totally, totally horrible for fingers. Like just the simplest thing, like the red, yellow, green buttons in the windows for yeah. closing. Not going to happen. Well, they're so close to each other. You'd never, nothing on iOS is ever that close to each other because you're, they're all right next to it. I mean, I'm looking at a Safari window right now and the close button, the minimize button and the back button are all, you know, within all of those three buttons are all within the target area of one button. That's the size of my fingertip. Right. Yeah. And the, and the menu, uh, the little icons right. in the menu bar, um, you know, with the, sound and the wi-fi and that kind of stuff none right. of that would really be right and touch so friendly. combine it yeah combine it with the file menu like the the top window in safari on my mac right now the the close button is right under the file menu so there's actually three touch targets four touch targets that are all within you know the with, with drastically different consequences right too. <laughs> right open a new oh i didn't mean to close that whole right. app yeah right it's it would be a recipe in frustration if they just turned on touch they'd have to resize everything and you know it, it just it would just be you know i'm not saying it's impossible but it's you know it, you'll be able to tell just by looking at ios 8 if it's designed with future touch in, in mind yeah that's interesting and if they were to ever converge them into one you know, whether it's fully, you know, the same operating system or at least the same look and feel, that's where we would start to see the cues yeah. there. Um, I thought you were going to say, look and see if it'll run on um, non-Intel, ARM. yeah, ARM chips. Well, well we wouldn't be able they, to they, know they're that. They're not going to, yeah, they're yeah. not going to mention that, so. Yeah. I will eat my hat if they don't have a version of Mac OS X running on ARM chips in the same, probably in the same freaking lab where. Oh they yeah, used to that's have. how that's how Tim Cook's MacBook Air lasts all the way right. uh, to uh, to Taiwan or whatever. Right, they'd be nuts <laughs> not to have it compile, especially now. I bet, and maybe they couldn't do it. In fact, I was thinking about it. Maybe they couldn't do it until the ARM went sixty-four bit with the the last year's devices, hmm. because Mac OS ten had already gone sixty-four bit, and there was no way they could keep. 64-bit Mac OS 10 running on 32-bit ARM chips. But now that they have 64-bit ARM chips, if they don't already have it running, they're, they're full steam ahead making it running. It's on. But we won't know that because in the same way that we never knew that iOS 
7 was going to be 64-bit until they shipped those devices, until they announced the iPhone 5S, because the versions, the betas they shipped starting at WWDC last year and all summer long, they just shipped 32-bit betas. And they never, you know... And nor did we know that there would be an Intel version of Mac OS versus the old uh, PowerPC chips. Right, because they just never distributed outside their internal lab. Hey, so speaking, I, I mentioned before about the fact that everything's mostly ones and zeros, but I do have... A physical thing to announce, which is the oh. live version of the talk show. I said this in the last episode. Whoa! I, I would have ticket information. I've done. This. Oh, <laughs> I'm, okay. You, I, I, I thought you. Were you were, I thought this show was live, and then we had an audience. <laughs> oh God, no! I would never do <laughs> it's that. Like, oh, cool! You, you launched a new uh, podcasting suite. Nice, uh, man. No, it's a live event next week in San Francisco, uh, Tuesday, six to nine p.m. at Mezzanine, which is right there on. Uh, uh, what's it, Mint Square or whatever the hell it's called? I don't know. Well, the address will be on the website. Here is where you go. This is the announcement for ticket information. Uh, I'm selling the tickets on a new system from my friend uh, Paul Campbell, the guy behind the Wool Conference, Tito. So you go to ti.to, super short domain name, ti.to slash Daring Fireball. And uh, right now, as soon as if you're listening to this, you can go. And you'll see a link to the talk show live from WWDC. Um, and you can buy tickets. It's going to be a limited space. We sold out pretty quickly last year. Same same facility. Uh, I think we'll have at least 350 tickets, maybe maybe more, but probably 350 to start. Uh, so if you're hearing this now, uh, you should go and check it out if you want to come. And anybody can go. You don't have to be a WWDC attendee. I think most people this year aren't are don't have badges. Yeah. Do you? Uh, uh, it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't I, ask. I, yeah. I have been told that I will have a press badge for the oh, cool. keynote, and I don't have a paid uh, attendee badge though. Okay. Got it. Um, but we'll I'm see. A, I'm going to scalp some tickets to this thing now because it's going to sell out by the time anyone. Are you going? This. You going? You going to be in San Francisco? I'm not. No, I'm actually going to be in Seattle that day uh, because Quartz is having a conference there. Uh, um, so it, funny Monday timing. and Tuesday. Uh, Monday, and then I'm actually spending Tuesday in Seattle and then right. coming back. Well, I you, should have gone to San Francisco. Well, you're going to miss from out. Seattle. But I've been to the one uh, that you did two years ago, and it was super fun. It was really yeah. great. Last uh, year's was, was better. Cable Sasser, right? Yeah, two years ago was Cable Sasser, and last year I had Guy English. Uh, better facility. We're at the same place we were last year, Mezzanine. Uh, more seats, uh, better acoustics. Really, It's a really great place. Uh, it's going to be an open bar. Everybody, you know, you can uh, enjoy any adult beverage of your choice. Uh, top shelf liquor. Uh, we're going to have great sponsors. Uh, Although I think the bar sponsorship is still open. So anybody who wants to sponsor it, uh, I'll be promoting this on Daring Fireball this week, uh, should get in touch with me through the usual channels on the website. Uh, so we're still looking for a sponsor for the bar. Uh, and special guests. Special guests this year at this live show. This is amazing. I don't know how it's going to work, but uh, I'm going to have the whole ATP crew. Wow. Uh, Marco Arment, John Syracusa. And uh, it, what was the other one? Was it? It's a. Uh, I don't know. Casey yeah. Liss. Oh yeah, yeah. Casey Liss. All three of them will be joining me on stage at the beginning of the show for the nerd. The nerd part. We're going to talk about the day before's news at WWDC, and then uh, 
And then my pal Scott Simpson's going to come on and, and uh, lighten it up a little bit. And Do musical a, guest, Dr. Dre. Musical, Dre, <laughs> musical guest, <laughs> Dr. Dre. Everybody will get a free pair of uh, Beats headphones. Yeah. Cool. Well, that sounds fun. I'm bummed I'm missing it. But. Tito, T-I.T-O slash Daring Fireball. And if you're in Seattle, come to the Quartz <laughs> Conference. <laughs> Six to nine, Tuesday in San Francisco. So there will be that. That'll be the show will probably come out tomorrow. So you'll have one week in advance to to make your make your uh, get your tickets. Anything else? No, that's good. It feels like a happy feels Memorial like a good Day. Show. Yeah, happy Memorial Day to you. Uh, happy uh, congratulations on the new gig. Always Thank good you. to see you writing more. You're, you're, I'm excited. I, I've kind of have had a lot of thoughts in my head over the last six months that have been too kind of busy slash lazy to express. So now I have to do it. And you know, I will. can I just say a big picture? I've been doing this for a while during Fireball and even the talk show. I am more excited about what's going on in all this stuff that we talk about this year than I've been in a long time. Because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot, a lot of turning points. I agree. I had last, the last, uh, I would say the second half of last year, I was super bored. Like I just did not really... I was almost offended by kind of how little progress was going on, but I don't know what. Maybe maybe it's just uh, the the spring after a, an awful winter. But I'm really I'm excited. I think there's a lot of you know, and and I hope I'm not disappointed by what ends up coming out of it. But I think that Apple in particular and other companies, Google and Microsoft and, and Amazon and even Facebook and Twitter are in a position to really do some cool stuff now. So. I hope they I hope they don't disappoint. I compare it to 2007 when the iPad or iPhone first came out, and nobody mm. we knew it was awesome. It's a little different because there's not one device that to me has cent, centered our attention. But it was like I just we just didn't know where it was going to go. It was clearly going somewhere new, but we couldn't tell where. And I right, we knew there feeling. was a phone coming, but we didn't yeah. know how drastically. Yeah, knew and it was I, I, be. I feel that way with the interface stuff for Mac OS X. I feel that way with the health monitoring stuff that everybody says is coming to iOS. It's, so it's coming, and it feels like it's cool ideas, but I can't tell where it's going. And so I feel like it's, it's a very exciting time to be writing about and talking about this stuff. Me too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank awesome. you, Dan. Yeah, thank you. QZ.com. QZ and at FromDome on Twitter at where you Frome can... Dome sound off and tell me I'm a moron. Right. What do we ask people we want them to send us their... Oh, programming on... Uh, if you have any ideas for... Oh, yeah. uh, Noob uh, tips for uh, early Yeah, like hypercard type stuff like Codia and stuff like that. Like ways that you can teach yourself programming on iOS. Awesome. Thank right. you, everyone. Yeah. And thanks, John. I'm hitting stop. <laughs>